Please be advised that the content in the Grave Tales podcast series is suitable for adults only. You're with Chris Adams and Helen Goltz for the Grave Tales, the series podcast. Today from the Grave Tales True Crime Volume 1 book, The Ladies Man, Killer Frederick Deeming. The last lady that Frederick Bailey Deeming wooed escaped with a life and she became known as the Uncemented Bride. Why? Because he buried his other brides under the flooring of his home. Yet those who loved him called him the gentlest of lovers. This is the story of how one woman's investigation saved her life and sent a murderer to the gallows. Come at once, or the rains will set in and travelling will be impossible. I was all joy when I got your wire to say you were leaving Bathurst, knowing how happy I could make you. Life without you would not be worth living. I don't know about you, but I'm swooning. (laughs) (laughs) So that was a letter that Frederick Deeming wrote to Miss Kate Rosenville, who agreed to marry him, and she was joining him in Western Australia. But we'll come to Kate shortly, because it all begins with... Miss Annie Salter, who lived to tell because she was a very clever woman. Now, Frederick Deeming was a bit of a romantic. He was not a bad-looking fellow. In fact, he was quite a handsome man, if you check the photos in our book. Mm -hmm. He could pen such words and he could say such words that women loved to hear. And Annie really liked him, but something stopped her from marrying him. She couldn't quite work out what it was. Now, we're talking, you know, the late 1800s here. In Australia? In Australia. Okay. So Annie Salter was quite keen on Frederick and he asked her to marry him many times. But what she didn't know, that he was also dating someone else and asking them to marry him as well. Yes. But Annie always said that somehow she just didn't feel it was quite right. These were words. I have seen him sit by me, talk gently of the things that women like to hear from lovers, and suddenly he would change completely, eyes that seemed capable of looking on and gloating over infamy or cruelty. Mm. So Annie was right, and we'll come to why soon, but she said he was the gentlest of lovers that women found irresistible. Okay, so there's two faces to Frederick Dean. There is indeed. What do you think it was that made her suspicious? Well, she had the conversation with him one afternoon, she said, that made her very uneasy with him. Supposedly a family had disappeared from a nearby town, and it was all over the news, as you can expect, and they were talking about it, Deeming and Annie. Yeah. And she said... You know, what could have happened? How could one family just disappear like that? And he suggested they'd been murdered. And she said, oh, couldn't happen. How do you hide a whole family from the police? And Deeming said to her, in his words, it would be the easiest thing in the world to dispose of unwanted persons and bury them in quicklime. What better place, for example, than under the hearthstone at home? He suggested it would be ideal because it involved inside work and no one would ever know. Now, the hearthstone, correct me if I'm wrong, that was the stone sort of around the fireplace. It's the stone in front of those, yeah, the fireplaces of those days. Right. That was one piece of stone that was put down in front of the fire in case bits fell out and so forth. Right, okay. Now, the reason that this little offhanded comment and his thoughts worried Annie was because she'd been to his home and she thought there was something uncanny about the floor of the house he lived in. What, she felt something weird about it? Or oh, she just thought it looked. Or? She thought it didn't look right. Okay. You know, I don't know whether it looked uneven or looked like it was recently done, or but she said when she saw it, she thought, oh. And then his comments made her worry. The amazing thing is she was really quite brave. On the next occasion that Frederick was away, she let herself into his home and she had a bit of a look around and she found family photographs of women and children. In the outhouse, she found a sack of lime. Wow. 
Yeah, that's freaky, isn't it? It is. Now, given he's a single man asking her to marry him, she was a bit weird about that. Do we know whether he was in those photos or not? Well, no, it just was family photographs of a woman and children. Children, yeah, okay. And the sack of lime in the outhouse. So that had her really worried. Interesting, too, she went to her local police confidant. She obviously had a police friend and she told him her suspicions. And the women listening will love this. He disregarded them as unfounded fears of a nervous woman. (laughs) (laughs) It'd be interesting to know what she said to them, whether she said, I'm suspicious about something that he's done in general, or was it related to the family that had disappeared? Do we know that? No, they didn't bother to look to see if it was a family that had disappeared. And perhaps it wasn't. I mean, perhaps he was just saying, you know, oh, you could easily get rid of a family. It was his own that he'd already done that to. But for whatever reason, her fears were unfounded. She was a nervous woman. You know how we are, we women. Nervous women. We're well like that. (laughs) Uh, So disregarded. But later she had her day because the police admitted it was her early suspicions that brought him to their attention when the neck grew tighter. Okay. Anyway, she called it off when he came home, which was very lucky because what she didn't know was that Frederick supposedly had been a little worried the fact that he'd been wooing these two women and asking them both to marry, so he thought he probably should get rid of one of them. It might have been Annie, we don't know, but luckily because she called it off, nothing ever came of that. Okay. So what do we know about this Frederick Deeming fellow? Well, we know he's not from here. He was from England. But prior to him arriving here, he was another one who had a dysfunctional childhood. Most of these people seem to have that caused these horrendous crimes. He and his parents had spent years in asylums. Now, asylums of that nature may not have always been mental asylums. Mm. People go into asylums if they were broke, yep. bankrupt, etc. But he said that they spent years and years in asylums. But he learned a few skills along the way. And he had a couple of brothers, Albert and Walter, who were plumbers and gas fitters. So he learned a bit of a trade with them. So he had some skills. And when he was 28, he met Marie James of Pembrokeshire in Wales. Lovely Marie. In 1881, they married and then they emigrated to Australia. And he worked for passage as a steward on that ship over. Okay. So they set up in Sydney and they had quite a respectable life there. He had his trade and their first daughter, Bertha, was born. That was going along well until he stole from his employers oh. and they dismissed him. Okay. But he was in prison for six weeks then as well. So he knocked something off. He knocked something off. Did some time. Yep. And then on his release, they moved to Rockhampton. Lucky Rocky. (laughs) Now, it's said that he liked the high life. And when you look at the photos of him, you know, he dresses like that too. He's very much, you know, the tall caps and the jackets and the top hat hat and the canes. And, you know, he looks like he liked the high life and didn't really want to be burdened with a family. But regardless, he now had one daughter, Bertha, and wife, Marie. And off they went to Rockhampton where their second daughter, Marie, was born. Another Marie. There he borrowed... 200 pounds from his employer, which seems an incredible amount of money. A lot of money, of money. For those days. I know, a lot of money. And they moved to Sydney without him paying the debt. Of course, he got caught and he ended up spending Christmas 1887 in jail, declared bankrupt. Hmm. It's not going well. No. He then learned creditors were after him, so he deserted Maria and the two girls and he headed off to Cape Town where his fraudulent activities continued under a variety of aliases. It's a bit like our Walter Perot story in our Brisbane volume. It is a little bit, yeah. yeah. So he's, all right, so he's in South Africa. He's over there causing havoc. The wife and kids are in Melbourne. Yeah, but they're in Melbourne. It must have been awful for Marie because, you know, she had no family here. Probably had a few friends. Lord knows what she was living on with the two girls. But anyway, he came back to them and was reunited with them the year after in 1888. Okay. But they moved to Adelaide where they became Mr. and Mrs. Ward. Right. (laughs) Not Deeming. But we'll keep referring to him as Deeming so we don't confuse ourselves, let alone anyone else listening. Then they decided they'd go back to Britain. So they sailed off. Sydney, their son, was born at sea. So they now have the three children. Marie went ahead to the UK while deeming Mr Ward committed a number of fraudulent acts at the Cape. 
Okay. One of these included, you'll love this, passing himself off as an Australian wool king by the name of Harry Lawson, where he married a Miss Helen Matherson, deserting her and taking her wedding ring and trousseau. Okay. Nice type, this bloke. Lovely. So, Harry Lawson. Harry Lawson. That sounds very strange. <laughs> Shit, my farmer. <laughs> yeah, very much so. He was then arrested in South America for fraud. Not bigamy, mind you, but fraud. And he was extradited to England in October 1891. So he's back in England where Marie and his three children are. Okay. So when he got back to England, did he immediately catch up with his wife and children? No, I think. Frederick liked the high life. I don't think he wanted to be burned with a son, two daughters and a wife. So he went to a little place called Rainhill in Lancashire, UK. It's about 13 miles or 21 kilometres from Liverpool, if people know their way around. And he rented a house under the name of Albert Williams. And he said he had a, a military record. He was a major and he was a widower. And you know, he used to put on this good show. People would call him Major. He'd wear a uniform occasionally, <laughs> punts around the streets and go to church on Sunday and so forth. His landlord was a widower and she had a daughter, Emily Mather. Emily Lydia Mather. And he'd pay the rent to Emily. The next thing we know, he's proposed to young Emily. Oh, okay. Yeah. But, oh, he'll love this. Not before his sister and children came to visit him. Now, have a guess who the sister and children are. Yeah, the wife and kids. Yeah, there was four of them by that stage, so they must have had another somewhere along the line. Bertha, age 10, Marie, 7, Sydney, 5, and Leela was 18 months, so perhaps it was on the ship over. Yeah. Anyway, they came to visit. He told Emily it was his sister and nieces and nephews. Now, the sad thing is they never left that house in Rainhill. On the 11th of August, 1892, he cemented the floor of that house in Rainhill smoking and drinking wine for refreshment during the task, it was said, because it was so arduous. And under that floor lay Marie and the children all murdered. Wow. So that's where the memory earlier had come when the other family disappeared and he said, and he talked about knowing about how easy it would be to get rid of bodies and... Exactly, and he had. He'd got rid of his first wife and family and buried them under the floor of the house he was renting, mind you, and moved to Australia then. So he came back to Australia and Emily came as his wife. Wow. Now, her family opposed the wedding, which was interesting. Uh, nevertheless, she sailed with her new husband in the Kaiser Wilhelm II, where bouts of theft were carried out quite regularly. I wonder by whom. <laughs> surprise, surprise. <laughs> yes, while he was on board. So they arrived 10 days before Christmas to begin their new life, and they rented a house at 57 Andrew Street, Windsor, Melbourne, a house in the, in the name of Druin. Okay. That's their new name. Emily didn't have much of a chance to enjoy married life or Melbourne. They'd only been there a few weeks when he smashed her skull on Christmas Eve, cut her throat and buried her and cemented her under the hearthstone again. The stone in front of the fire. So he paid rent for a further four weeks. He wrote to Emily's mother and said, We have spent a happy Christmas. Emily is the happiest woman ever seen. She does enjoy herself. Emily's mother would never hear from her daughter again, deeming soul some of her things, continued to commit fraud, living under a variety of aliases and moved around the country. But he was soon to become unstuck, and I'll tell you why. Just remember that house. Right We're going so to come back ha- to it. that's the house in Windsor. That's it. He was now on that He had no wives, no children, and he prayed around as a single man and saw other women. And this is when he saw Annie Salter, who we started our story with. The suspicious Annie Salter. The, the very clever and suspicious Annie Salter, who, please say, is a nervous woman. <laughs> he adopted the name of... Baron Swanston and went to Sydney by the steamer Adelaide on the 12th of January and there he met another love on board, old Frederick. So this is the other woman that he was seeing when he was seeing Annie? This is it. Yeah. Oh no, I believe there might be another again. Oh, is that right? This is another lady yet again, Miss Kate Rosenvelt. 
Now, Kate would play a big part in his downfall as well. So not wasting any time, they're on this voyage together on the steamer Adelaide, and he proposes to her. Now, Kate said later in an interview with the Argus newspaper, so Kate survived, that Deeming or Baron Swanson was really persistent with his intensity of her. He's told her that she was young and attractive and fascinated him. And you can imagine, because we've read a little bit of his love letter. That was yeah. his love letter you heard at the start to, to Kate. Right. He said if she consented to be his wife, she'd never regret it. But she said at the time, I couldn't think of marrying a stranger who I'd only known several days. So I refused to accept a ring from him. But she said he was so earnest and he persisted to such a degree that eventually she consented which is kind of not surprising in the era. But then didn't Deeming go to Western Australia? What was that about? Yeah, exactly. He got a job there. He asked Kate to go home, pack and meet him there. He gave her some gifts, clothes that once belonged to a woman he courted, he said, and jewellery and his sister's dresses. Of course, they were all the clothing of his dead wife. She arrived back in Melbourne in 1892 with Deeming and then he took the steamer Albany for Western Australia and he had work lined up at Fraser's Gold Mining Company. Kate prepared her trousseau for the journey and booked her passage. Meanwhile, back at the Windsor House. (laughs) Meanwhile, back at the Windsor House. The owner of that house, now we're talking March 1892 here to give you a bearing, was a Melbourne butcher by the name of John Stanford. So John took some prospective tenants to the house, again, 57 Andrew Street, Windsor, to see if they'd like to rent it. And of course, there was a most horrendous smell from the front room. He called the police and Emily's decomposing and partially clad body was found in the shallow grave under the fireplace. Interesting, an old invitation in the name of Deeming's alias, Williams, was found in the house. Okay. So they had a little path then to start tracking him down. It yeah. created what they, you know, a snowball effect. News of that discovery soon reached the UK police and they began inquiries in Rainhill because questions were raised about Deeming's visiting sister. And the kids. And his missing first wife and children. It wasn't long before it came to light that the Major had carried out these renovations, as we know, with his bag of lime at the former Rainhill residence, and that the workmen he had obtained and prepared cement from weren't invited to take part in cementing the floor. They weren't even invited to enter the house, and he worked at night undisturbed for obvious reasons. So they made up the cement for him outside, didn't go into the house. He worked at night alone. Yep, see you later and buried the family. So police dug up that floor in Rainhill Mm -hmm. and there were Maria and the four children there. It was really interesting because the public was absolutely mortified by it. It it literally caused a frenzy. It was bizarre, you know, extra rail services were scheduled so the morbidly curious could descend on Rainhill and shuffle past the house. Wow. I know, can you believe that? Over 10,000 people lined the streets and on the day of the funeral, they crowded the cemetery to watch the... and flowers were left on their graves anonymously for years and years afterwards. So now this man, Deeming, who had murdered two wives and four children, was about to meet justice. So, okay, so where's Kate while all this is going on? Well, in the meantime, (laughs) Kate's en route to meet him as arranged. So he's... She's on the steamer. She's going. She read the newspaper on the train, which included details about these murders, but she didn't make the connection because she's going out with Baron and this fellow who did the original Windsor murder is Williams, of course, as we know from the invitation. That was his alias when he was there with Emily. So when she stopped in Melbourne, she received an urgent telegram from her sister reading, for God's sake, go no further. So she didn't. Now, Frederick Deeming was located in Western Australia and honestly, he almost received a public lynching. When the news got around of, of who he was and what he'd done. Yeah, police were there. He faced this rowdy reception when they brought him back to St Kilda Pier. They had a police on each side. And there's interesting illustrations in the papers at the time in 1892 of the crowds, and they had to hold the crowds back. And most of the anger was, of course, because of the act of murdering what they call the weaker sex in children, yeah. us nervous women. 
In early April, he was committed for trial and the public was out for blood. But his counsel sought a month's adjournment to enable psychiatric histories to be secured and to let the hysteria abate a bit for what good that would do, really. But anyway, the trial came around quickly. It took place on the 28th to the 30th of April on the 2nd of May. And one of the witnesses was his fiancée, Kate, who became known as the Uncemented Bride. You'll love this part because Frederick Deeming wrote to his fiancée, Kate, immediately after his arrest, professing his innocence and love and then asking her to help him. He wrote... I was arrested on a charge of murder, of which I know nothing whatsoever about. I don't see that I shall have any trouble in clearing myself, knowing that my dear Katie will never believe me guilty of such a fearful crime is more than comfort to me. P.S. Dear Katie, if you can send any part of the £20 I sent you to my solicitor to help pay for my defence, I should be very glad, as I have gone to big expense in getting the home ready. If you can't send much... Please sell the five stone ring I gave you for whatever you can get for it. I'll soon get you another. She'd be waiting with bated breath for that I'm ring, sure. wouldn't you? Yeah, wouldn't you? <laughs> yeah, and keep that ring. <laughs> anyway, the jury took no time to convict him, and that won't surprise you. He received the death sentence. And on the 23rd of May, 1892, Deeming was hanged. Interesting, he wrote an autobiography during his brief stint in jail, but it was destroyed. Isn't that a shame? I wonder who destroyed it. I don't know, probably the... Jail officials. Official something, yeah. but the medical personnel would love to get their hands on that, I'm sure. So he presumably was hanged at the old Melbourne jail and would have been buried inside the walls? He was, and it's interesting. It's a, this is a whole other story which we won't touch on, but his skull went missing. They thought that unearthed it at one stage, but there was also another missing skull of a famous resident of that same jail, Ned Kelly. Oh, OK. So they had to do DNA testing to see whose skull it was, whether it was his or Ned's, etc. But that's a whole different story again and another different story if you're really interested in Frederick Deeming and want to pursue it is that there was some suspicion he may have been Jack the Ripper he was in England around the time of the Whitechapel murders in 1888 and possibly acquainted with one of Jack's victims Catherine Eddowes remember yeah I do yeah (laughs) around first (laughs) Brisbane one but I tell you what after what he did to his wife and children he's a fairly good candidate for that yeah absolutely what happened to Kate Roundsville and Annie Salter yeah well just on Maria and the four children they were buried in St Anne's Churchyard in Rainhill. But sadly, the headstone was stolen, which is really a shame. I mean, as if they haven't been through enough. Yeah. The grave today remains unmarked. I've checked, so there's no point sort of trying to find it unless you're really keen and want to wander around the English cemeteries. Kate, yes, the fiancé, Miss Annie Salter, who survived because she was the cleverest woman out. Well, they both survived, of course. There's little written about what became of them. There was an article in the 1898 Windsor and Richmond Gazette that said Kate, who became known as the Uncemented Bride, had turned up in Scotland. She made a claim through a solicitor to try and get the jewellery gifted to her by deeming, but she was informed all of it was stolen and had been returned to its original owners. But worth a try, Kate. Yeah. An historic record lists a potential marriage for Annie Salter, so it looks like she may have married, and luckily it wasn't Frederick. And she died, by the looks of it, in 1927, from what I can find out, which was 34 years longer than Frederick lived. And, of course, Emily Mather, wife of Frederick, is buried in the Melbourne General Cemetery in Parkville. It's an impressive grave, and the instructions on how to find it in our book. Yeah, it's a very impressive grave because it was given by public subscription. But there's a really peculiar piece of writing on the grave, which was put there by a friend of hers, supposedly, the Inspector of Nuisances of the 1890s, Edward Thunderbolt, and it reads... To those hereafter who come reflecting upon this text of her sad ending, to warn her sex of their intending for marrying in haste, 
if depending on such a fate, too late for amending. So basically what it's saying is don't marry in haste. But I thought, well, surely Emily doesn't need that put on her headstone. Thanks very much, Edward. But anyway, she's in Melbourne General Cemetery, as you said, Church of England section, if you wanted to pay your respects. It's a little tricky to find that, Gray, remember? Yes, it is, but it's big. It is big. It's big and it's white and it does stand out, but you need to persevere a bit with Mm. Melbourne General Cemetery because there's so much in there and it's so large. Yeah, and I just want to finish with Annie's words because Annie started this whole process when she went to the police and thought there was something suspicious about this man who loved her. And she said at the trial... She recalled the strangest feelings when she went to his home. She said, I remember my first visit to the house that had been made the grave of his murdered wife. As I stood on the hearthstone, there was a deep sense of tragedy that I could not explain. And of course we know now that's where Emily lay, who came to our shores to begin her married life. If you've enjoyed today's episode of Grave Tales, we'd really appreciate it if you could take a minute to give us a great rating. <laughs> You've been listening to a story from Grave Tales the series, available in paperback, ebook, and select titles on audiobook, music by Kai Engels. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, or on our website. Check out our YouTube channel as well. Or put together your own group and come along on our Great Ocean Road Tour. <laughs>